Wednesday, everybody. This is Brandon Busty, president of University Partners at Kaplan. And I'm excited to have you here for our latest episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. Today, I'm really excited to be able to talk with the president of Drexel University, John Fry. And John and I are gonna be uh, zeroing in on this conversation about work readiness, uh, but we're gonna talk specifically about the co-op, the history of the co-op, something Drexel's known for. Um, and uh, I'm sure it's gonna be a really exciting conversation. John, thank you very much for carving out the time to join us and uh, just uh, give, give the audience a little bit about uh, who you are and about Drexel and we'll, we'll dive in from there. Okay, Brian, thanks. It's great to be with you. Um, so let me say something first about Drexel. Um, founded in 1891 as the Drexel Institute of Art, Science, and Industry, which I think right away kind of puts a certain frame around our mission. Um, and really has from the very, very beginning been a kind of a theory to practice place. So, you know, you learn by doing. And I think that that sort of sets the stage uh, 20 years later for co-op being founded. And so that's what we'll talk about today. Just a word about myself. Um, I uh, got into higher ed uh, through management consulting. I was a partner at Coopers and Librand. I ran their national higher education practice, was recruited uh, by the University of Pennsylvania to be their chief operating officer, then went on to Franklin and Marshall as president. And now I've just finished my 10th year as president at Drexel. So it's been, I've had an opportunity to be in higher ed all my professional life. Um, advising and then doing, and it's been uh, it's been a great ride. Yeah, and so uh, you guys just celebrated the 100th anniversary of co-op at Drexel, and as you and I were chatting before, uh, you do the math on going back 100 years, and it interestingly uh, has a lot of uh, a, a corollary to where to where we are right now in the middle of this pandemic. So, uh, t tell us about the history of co-op. Yeah, you know it, it's. This is really sort of poignant because as I was getting prepared for the interview, I kind of read back a little bit on the history. And so uh, the second president of uh, Drexel was an MIT uh, trained sort of management efficiency expert named um, Hollis Godfrey. And so uh, Godfrey came to commencement in June of 1919 uh, at a time in this country where we had uh, just concluded our participation in World War One. There was giant influenza um, pandemic. There were uh, race riots in this country. The suffragist movement was in, 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 in full force. There was just a huge amount of disruption and uncertainty and tragedy facing our country. And, and it, was a, it, was, it was a difficult time. And what Godfrey said, and I want to quote this to you um, during that commencement, what can Drexel and other schools like it do in a time of great crisis? So he was thinking about what is this institution going to do that's going to sort of break the box and, and be relevant and helpful as the, as the country stages its recovery from these sort of unprecedented you know, crises? And uh, what he came up with basically in that speech was the frame for, um, for co-op. And so it started with um, basically an idea of supporting sort of post-war, the post-war economy. How do you get America sort of restarted and working again? Um, 152 engineering students from our College of Engineering were in the first class of co-op, um, and and basically the idea is that you know you're 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 going to school, you're doing your you know laboratory assignments, you're doing your classroom work, and then you're taking part of your time to go out and work in industry. And it's interesting that some of those co-op partners that we started with 100 years ago, like Dupont, are still around. So you know we've been doing this 100 years and. Like DuPont, you know, some of these companies still exist. Like the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Railroad, they don't exist. 
Um, so we've really sort of seen these sort of generations of, of, of companies uh, that have been our partners and, and they are our bedrock. So we have 1500 plus domestic and international partners who work with us on co-op and many of these relationships are plus five decades. And so we, we really, really know these companies well. We know what their human capital needs are. We'll have hundreds if not thousands of alumni um, from our university who work at, the, at those companies. And so these relationships are, are super thick and, and have developed you know, uh, in, in a very uh, intense way over, over time. Um, we started a lot with uh, sort of industrial companies, manufacturing companies as you would expect. But since then, it's really sort of uh, grown up into a situation where we're working with global companies like you know, Johnson & Johnson and startups here in Philly. Uh, not-for-profits, governmental organizations, for-profits, and now we have hundreds and hundreds of co-ops around the world, which we never did before from an international standpoint. So there's a lot of dimension to it. And then there are sort of specializations. Uh, we have research co-ops where we have people in you know pharmaceutical labs doing co-ops. We have, um, we have co-ops, as I mentioned, in about two or three dozen co countries. We have entrepreneurial co-ops where we basically pay you to start your own company, um, you know, and, and we provide you with space and coaching and, you know, some of the startup capital. You you interview Nick Bear from Saxby's. We have the the sort of yeah. Saxby's you know co-op. We have students basically managing their own PLs in a series of Saxby's on campus. And so we've adapted this over time to make sure that as our students have said, well, what about this or what about that? We can accommodate their needs and their desires. And so it, it continues to evolve and grow. It's, it's very healthy. It's very, very dynamic. I can talk later if you want about the compensation for our students, which helps underwrite the education, but it's, it really is the centerpiece of our educational experience here. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, most people are, are somewhat familiar with co-op, right? The degree, though, to which they really understand some of the nuances or like what you just mentioned, there's a lot of different flavors of co-op at Drexel, right? From, you know, a hundred year partnership with a longstanding company to brand new startups to research-based type uh, co-ops. And so, you know, it's obviously taking a lot of flavors, including international, uh, you know, companies as part of that. So, you know, I always take a step back, though, and I think about this, where at a time uh, when most of the country is seriously questioning the work readiness of college graduates, it's the, it's the biggest critique of higher education, maybe, maybe alongside the price tag uh, of higher education. And so in, in, in the midst of that backdrop of this critique of the work readiness of, of college graduates, I ask the question, right, why haven't more institutions adopted a, a, a broadly scaled program like co-op, right? I mean, there, there's Northeastern, there's a handful of universities that have made it a signature, but, um, and look, we know this is a lot of work. There's a lot of things higher ed does that's a lot of work, right? And so I, I just pose that question to you. Why, why do you think we haven't seen a, a more wide scale adoption of a co-op model across, across the rest of higher ed? Well, I, I think probably the business reason is that the barriers to entry are very, very significant. And so those relationships, as I indicated before, have been built over decades, decades. And so we go into every year knowing that there's a, a huge amount of demand from these companies for our students. But that that didn't happen overnight. That happened with years and years of hard work and, and sort of trust and, frankly, the results that, that um, our students have been able to achieve for these companies. They're not doing this as a favor to us. They're helping you know, form their future workforce. 
and they're leveraging you know, the, the talent of these really smart young people to come to their company and show them new ways of doing things and, and, and thinking things. So the barriers to entry, Brandon, are, are significant. Our Steinbright you know, co-op center, which, which manages this, it's probably you know, 80 or 90 people who are doing nothing but making sure that these kids get placed. Yeah. And I think like 98% of our kids in a traditional year will find one of, one of their co-op jobs, which by the way, uh, putting aside the 20% that don't pay because we have a lot of students who are doing co-ops at not-for-profits or governmental agencies, the average compensation for a six-month co-op is $18,000. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at when you're 19 years old. Um, and then right. the average student at Trexel does three co-ops over six months uh, at a time. So it's three six-month experiences, and they tend to stay five years instead of four, mostly because the co-op has been so enriching. So I'd say I I issue number one is, wow, to set this up is a, is a big deal and you have to be really committed. But I think maybe the more profound issue than the barriers uh, to entry is the fact that th this has a very important effect on what happens in the classroom between students and faculty. So um, imagine teaching a group of, of, of Drexel co-op students coming back from, you know, six months, you know, at, um, you know, um, an international financial firm and you're teaching them, you know, you're teaching them finance. If, if you if you're teaching off of some old yellow notes, you're going to get challenged. You're going to get challenged on the first day. Yep. So I, I think this has a profound effect on the way our faculty teach because our faculty are exposed to a tremendous amount of market information, um, and they they are they are hearing from our students sort of real time about what is happening out there and what the innovations are. And you have to stay fresh. And one of the things I'm, I'm so proud of our, our faculty is that they expose themselves to that. And there are no yeah. yellow notes at Drexel, I can tell you that, because of that free flow of, of market information. And, and there, there is a give and take in the classroom um, that I, I think is um, un, unusually uh, rigorous both ways. Um, yeah. and, and I'm not sure faculties around the country um, have necessarily signed up for something like this. I think there's a cultural component to this that may make it difficult as, as well for schools, uh, other institutions to sort of pick this up. It's a very, very different kind of educational system and it's not traditional. And we know how much higher ed values tradition. And you know, we have our own traditions, but our traditions are constantly changing and evolving given the way the world is changing and evolving. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I hadn't I hadn't really thought much uh, or very deeply about that. The the second component, obviously, of the you know the way that this kind of affects the teaching, right, and the faculty, and you know, it, it is a it is a cultural you know kind of shift from what you know the rest of higher education kind of typically thinks of. And so, yeah, you're right. You know, the faculty have to kind of adjust what they're doing. They have to be you know closer to the reality of what's happening out there. And um, so I think that that's a that's a that's a solid answer. So thank you. I'm glad uh, glad I threw that one out there to you. And I, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I say too. I've seen this um, also have an impact on the research of our, our that our faculty um, engage in. You know, we have you know we we do basic research all over the place here, but there's an unusual amount of a sort of applied translational research. We also have a huge number of patents coming from our faculty and startup companies. And there's a big ecosystem of innovation around here. And I'd submit part of it is the spirit of co-op that kind of is, is, is infusing our university and faculty are sort of picking up in that, on that in their own work. And, and you know, the, the, the amount of translation that comes out of this university and favorably impacts 
you know, the local and, and sort of regional economy is really, really significant. So it, it really is a learning by doing continuum that goes far beyond just the sort of the co-op box. Yeah, and, and, and so that was actually one of the segues, right? I know you've embarked on a couple of pretty ambitious innovation districts, right? Uh, and I would love to have you kind of talk about that because these are, I think, some of the examples of things that naturally flow as a result of an institution that has this kind of immediate theory to practice interplay you know, even including, you know, how you guys think about research. Um, so tell us a little bit about Schoolkill Yards and some of the other things you're doing in the uh, in the innovation district front. Well, I mean, so, so my mind model for this has been what's happened up at Kendall Square between MIT and Harvard and, you know, Novartis and Microsoft. And, you know, when, when, one of the thrilling things about walking through Kendall Square is that at times you're not sure if you're on a campus or you're, you're you know, right next to a company because things have been brought together in, in such profound ways. And so kind of inspired by the work up in Kendall Square, we started looking around University City, also home of the University of Pennsylvania, one of the world's greatest universities, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, one of the two or three greatest pediatric you know, medical centers in the country, the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, the University City Science Center, which is the first urban research park in the United States. And we have, we have this burgeoning talent and we're all cheek to jowl in terms of our physical location. But I think what we were missing was the, like the interstitial tissue that would actually connect us and allow us to do work together. So uh, we have two innovation districts that we are cultivating right now. One is called School Pool Yards. If you're at 30th Street Station, you walk out the west door, you walk right into School Pool Yards. It's 14 acres. It'll be when it's complete about 7 million feet, about a $3 billion plus in down, uh, uh, um, construction budget, uh, home to Spark Therapeutics, um, which uh, was just purchased by Roche Pharmaceuticals, a cell and gene therapy company that there are, they're tenant number one, and which is, you know, I can't tell you what a, a throwing yeah. thing is. And we have already hired 500 people and they're working literally a block from where I'm sitting right now. And so th that begins to shape the characters that you have a great company like Spark in school cool yards at the gateway to Drexel University. And by the way, we'll have other people joining us from other universities and medical centers, new companies coming in, and it forms a critical mass of intellectual capital, some of it educational, some of it medical, some of it commercial, and by the way, a lot of residential and retail to sort of connect all of that. So that's to the east and um, to the west is something called U-City Square, which is on the campus of the uh, University City Science Center. It's basically the same type of layout, you know, research, you know, innovation, residential, retail. And, and these, these two innovation districts, one to the east and one to the west of Drexel, anchor a lot of all of this other activity. And so again, if you want to come to Philadelphia um, to do business, this is the place This is the place that you want to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I love your example too, thinking about Kendall Square and you know, certainly what you just described. I mean, you've got all the elements, including some unique elements that, uh, that, you know, that Cambridge doesn't have. And, um, so it, it's, uh, it's really inspiring to kind of see the various parties that are invested in that, right? To see Drexel taking a, a leadership role in that. Uh, and in some ways, it's an example of uh, the, you know, the convergence of the disciplines uh, across academia, right? You know, interdisciplinary uh, arenas are where a lot of the breakthroughs are happening. That's where a lot of the excitement and energy is. And so this is kind of an interdisciplinary example of, you know, hospital multiple university, corporate, large company, right? You know, healthcare system, small company, startup, like, you know, that mix is a, is a really dynamic uh, and, and energetic type of place to be. And I can't imagine, you know, 
we've talked a little bit about this through the lens of the benefit to students and you know how the faculty at, at Drexel kind of adjust around something like a co-op model and are kind of part of the culture of that. But you know, there's some real benefit from the companies that are part of this. I mean, I, I, I come from my own example when I had a startup outside of Boston and need a mass and uh, somebody from the Northeastern co-op office reached out to us and we had 11 employees. I mean, I wasn't even in the phone book. Somehow they found me, right? And, you know, my story was as, a, as an 11 person startup, uh, I, I got more benefit from the co-op students that we had than any, I can't imagine another company benefit more. And, and I've shared this story many times before. The first uh, young lady that we hired as a co-op student from Northeastern I made her our director of marketing because at the time I didn't have one, right? And so I literally said, Kim, you're the director of marketing, go. And she was like, what, really? And guess what? She was so good, we ended up hiring her. We gave her a job offer two years before she graduated. I mean, so I, I saw it in, in terms of how beneficial it was to me. And you know, I wasn't, I mean, sure, the, the other benefit was I'm, I'm helping out students and I'm giving them a learning experience, but honestly, it was an incredible source of talent and productivity for my startup. So uh, tell me about some of the other examples of where the business partners you're working with are really are really benefiting. I would just, you know, I'm sure you've got some anecdotes and would love to love to hear some of the ones that you think are particularly interesting. Well, I, I, I want to mention that the story you just told happily is not unusual. I, yeah. I have heard versions of that story from entrepreneurs like you to sort of more established, you know, companies that say these kids come in and we just throw them the challenge and they just go running and they have to figure it out and they add value. And many times they're then recruited, um, you know, back to work the company. I think 50% of the students who graduate from Drexel have at least one job offer from one of their co-op companies. So yeah. this is, you know, back to your question about employment, not only are they getting the experience, they're actually getting the offers. Right. And, and these are competitive offers. I think the average comp uh, for a Drexel graduate a senior graduating last year was like $56,000. I mean, that's that's a great way to start your professional life. But but to your question, and, and sort of in honor of the next 100 years of co-op, we've been thinking about, okay, how do we sort of go beyond that, that very, very good model that continues to evolve and, and actually um, engage in more sort of customized work for companies? And so we formed something in 2019, again, in honor of the 100 years of co-op called the Drexel uh, Solutions Institute. And, and these are basically, um, it's, it's like um, a consulting company that designs bespoke solutions for companies that have particular issues and, 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 and problems and challenges that they're working on. So one of my favorite ones is uh, there's a, a, a very successful um, a fund company here um, in, in, in Philadelphia called SDI. And they're, they're, they do you know, big investments and they are sort of heavy into wealth management. And they were trying to figure out you know, the wealth management portal that they had, um, you know, designed, how, how are their customers interacting with it? How are they thinking about it? Is, is it, is it a sort of a high quality experience? And so uh, we have a, a sort of um, uh, like a, a, a neuro lab. Well, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here because I, this, this, this sort of struck me uh, that employs brain imaging to measure cognitive functions when customers are sort of engaged in certain types of activities to see, how are they really sort of thinking about their experience with your product? Is, yeah. is it a successful experience or not? I mean, you can throw marketing material at people all day long, but you don't really know how they think about this until they're interacting with the product. And as a result of this, and by the way, this is faculty directed 
but student-led. So this is this is the team. It's a team of Drexel faculty and, and student the senior managers at SEI to sort of figure this out. And and as a result, this wealth platform um, was you know you know modified based on some of the recommendations and the findings that we had. That that's that's not a make-believe you know project for the for the benefit of some students to sort of try it out on. I mean, this is right. This this is a real a real issue, a real challenge. Uh, there was real compensation paid. Uh, faculty, students you know, engaged with customers, um, and um, I, I think as a result, SEI and I, and I went to one of the presentations to the CEO of, of the of these recommendations. And I mean, this was this was a real moment. Yeah. I think for our people, and I think for them as well. And so that's that's one example of what the Solutions Institute is trying to do: is sort of honor the spirit of co-op. But now let's bring our faculty into this as well in teams with our students and right. work with our partners to think about how we extend our relationships, which only make those relationships stronger and, and, and more robust. Yeah, it's funny, just as you were starting to talk about it, I was wondering, are faculty getting involved in these projects with students? And you know, you, you obviously answered that. that. That to me is a really, really exceptional feature of this. You know, And you think about for a second, step back and, and kind of dissect all the learning science elements of what you just described, right? Students are able to apply what they're learning, right? They have some coaching and assistance, whatever terminology you might want to use by working with faculty on it. A lot of us get in work projects at work, right? And, and we don't often get feedback, right? Good or bad. <laughs> and, you know, we, we might have a good manager who's very good at providing that. We might have a manager who just doesn't give you any feedback whatsoever. So to think that students are having this opportunity to have input and interactions with the company on a real project that they know matters to that organization, faculty guiding and kind of shaping the teamwork. I think just the idea of faculty and students working together on a project, it, I mean, that, that to me is a breakthrough because usually it's faculty assigning students a project, right? And they kind of go off and, you know, maybe there's some points of review, but I, I just, you know, all those things to me have uh, a lot of learning science value to them aside from you know just thinking about the you know the, the, the obvious things you've mentioned of students contributing to an organization and an organization uh, contributing to them right like that that obviously is very important but what other you know what other on that front right what are some of the other dimensions that you guys are, are thinking about right now as you think about the next hundred years of, of co-op I'm thinking a lot because of what's happening in our country right now I'm thinking about how does co-op connect into all the civic engagement work that we're doing? We, we have a, a big mandate by mission and by the nature of, of our leadership here to really look around us and, and think about how can we improve you know, the quality of life in the surrounding neighborhoods, some of which are among the poorest in, um, in Philadelphia. And, and by the way, we're here in West Philadelphia uh, and our, our particular focus is a federal promise zone, which is immediately north of our campus. Mantua is the community within the federal promise zone that we're most focused on, and it's one of the poorest in the city. We also just bought a 50% interest in um, St. Christopher's Hospital for Children in North Philadelphia for the benefit of our College of Medicine in terms of securing pediatric rotations. And, and that part of North Philadelphia it, it also has a very, very high rate of poverty, low educational attainment. A tremendous amount of food insecurity and health inequity and things of that nature. So we have these two, these two really precious parts of Philadelphia that have been underserved forever, 
as far as I'm concerned. And then we have this institution that I've described to you through co-op and through the Drexel Solutions Institute. And, and, and the work now is, okay, so how do we bring how do we bring all of this together? But how do we do it in partnership with our neighbor neighborhoods? Right. I think I think we've learned from the the thing I just sort of mentioned to you is that it, in in that SEI setting, there was an absence of hierarchy. I mean, it was faculty, students, customers, and company all working together to try to sort of figure out what was right. And I think the attitude to bring um, into this this sort of promosome work or work with neighbors around St. Christopher's Hospital is that you know we need we need to develop true partnerships and we need to work on the problems together. It, it shouldn't be the solution coming to, you know, sort of meet the problem. It should be sort of you know, discernment of what the problems are and the issues are, and then building teams of neighbors and students and faculty to work on those problems. And, and I think what I'm seeing now in our neighborhoods is, is very much of that kind of attitude. We have an extension center, um, which we believe is the first urban extension center in the United States kind of modeled off the old agricultural extension centers. But this is an extension center in this promise zone. And basically it's focused on education, you know, healthcare, employment, developing uh, technology skills, all those types of things. And so I think the next, the, the next big push for us is, okay, how do we link this all civically now? That's an incredibly inspiring uh, vision, John. And, you know, I wonder to what degree that, you know, that sort of, you know, couldn't be a, you know, look, it's, it's a moment for Drexel, right? Because you've got the infrastructure in place to do this. You've got a model in place to do it, right? It's a, in, in some ways, it's just taking that and pivoting it in a very focused way around civic engagement and, and, and kind of neighborhood engagement uh, with, with all the key constituents that are part of that. But like, is, isn't that something also a, a national moment for us, right? As we think about the purpose of higher education, as we think about you know, uh, you know what what young adults can do in this moment of crisis on many levels, right? Like we, I feel like we're we're managing multiple uh, you know pandemics in terms of what's happening with race relations. Uh, you know, not just the the, the you know the, the public health pandemic, and uh, you know, so uh, I, I wonder what are your thoughts on what some of the big national movements are, right? Like, do we have a big national year of service opportunity for us? Do we and could higher ed be part of that? I'm just I'm just curious. Your your thinking on that gave me some uh, some some more questions that I wanted to ask you. Well, I mean, I, I'll go back to Godfrey's question: What can Drexel or, frankly, any other institution um, like it do in a time of great crisis? And I, I think that's that's the question we all have to ask ourselves right now. I know we are asking that question at our university because this is a time of great crisis. We may be a private university, but we work in the public interest. Um, and frankly, there's a moral dimension to this. I mean, if, if we want to teach our students, um, you know, um, to take their part in, in a great civic society, they're going to be looking at some of the things that we're doing as an institution. And it, it can't be, you know, um, it can't be the ivory tower response, you know, where we're kind of on a hill somewhere tending to ourselves. You know, we have to be a very, very different type of, of institution in terms of outreach. And so, I would say, let's start by each asking ourselves as leaders of the various institutions that we run, what can we do in a time of crisis? And, you know, the answer is there is a ton more we can do than we're doing right now. A ton. Yeah. I mean, I, when I started some of the work around the civic engagement years and years ago, in fact, it was at my first you know, convocation where I gave this talk and kind of charged the community around this. And people said, well, some of these things are impossible to achieve. We're doing way more than that right now. And we're doing it with resources that we have and also resources that have been attracted 
to our institution because of the very nature of this work. It is so nourishing for our students, for our faculty, for our staff, for our trustees, and, and we're really doing good. And, and now the issue is we need to do a lot more and we need to accelerate it given the state of the country. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm reminded why I'm so glad that you came on this show, John, uh, you know, and why it's entitled Bold Leaders and Learning. You know, you're, you're very much taking the view of at a time of great crisis, instead of what can't we do, and focusing on all the, you know, the, the challenges and hindrances to what's in front of us, you know, you're asking what can we do, right? And I think that is just an important place that all of us have to encourage one another to stay in uh, as, we, as we grapple through this. One of the things I wanted to share too with you uh, before we let you go is that we've had lots of comments on the LinkedIn feed from, uh, from proud Drexel grads uh, who are commenting about, you know, the culture of the school always being uh, about practical experience while learning. And a couple of very satisfied co-op partners, one uh, comment from Dory Kaplan, who says that her startup company just hired a Drexel University student and, uh, and they've done phenomenal work in a very short period of time. She's a primary contributor to our social media engagement program. So once again, no surprise, but these are comments that have been coming in as we've been talking. And uh, you know, I really appreciate your, your time today. I look forward to hearing about the, the next uh, exciting steps for Drexel and your vision for the next 100 years of co-op. For those of you who tune into the show regularly, uh, we'll be back next week with Maria Flynn, uh, the CEO of JFF. We'll be talking about a lot of the innovations happening on the corporate upskilling and reskilling front. So, John, thank you very much. I hope you have a great rest of the academic year and uh, appreciate all your time. Good. Good to be with you today. Thanks for the conversation.